invite you to take your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 4. Let's turn together in the Word of God to Esther chapter 4 this evening. And we're continuing in our study of the book of Esther. We come now to chapter 4, beginning there, and we'll have our place open to verse 1. And tonight, we will walk through, by God's grace, uh, Esther chapter 4. So we look at this passage, it's a reminder that the sovereignty of God is replete over every chapter of the Bible. In fact, if we're honest, the sovereignty of God is really hard to wrap our own minds around. And part of the reason why that is, is because God uses ordinary means to execute and to carry out His sovereign will. He uses ordinary people, ordinary places, ordinary events, and ordinary things to execute His purposes and His plan. As we think about this, I think this is part of the reason why we understand that God reigns, as the Scripture teaches us that He does, that His throne is in the heavens, and that His kingdom rules, His sovereignty literally rendered, His sovereignty rules over all. We understand that, we sing about it, we take God at His word about that, but then in our ordinary living of our lives, sometimes we see God's hand at work and we say to ourselves, that surely has to be the Lord, that couldn't just be happenstance it's just so hard to believe because it's us it's them it's here it's now sometimes it's hard for us to understand God's ways and his will sometimes it's just hard to understand because it's just not our plan things aren't going the way we think they need to go God is working in a way that surely could not be his will because it's not our will well last time together we looked into Esther chapter 3, and we saw Haman's plan that he hatched, that he birthed, that he took, and he presented to King Xerxes, and it was approved. And when the scene closed at the end of chapter 3, we saw the very last phrasing there, that the city of Shushan, the citadel, uh, the decree, decree was announced, so the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was troubled. They were perplexed. Now we come to chapter 4 of the book of Esther, which is the most well-known chapter of the book. In fact, it's why Esther is called the book of Esther. She was absent from the previous chapter in a sense, and now she comes back into the scene. And so it's a turning point, not only in the book, but in my opinion, it's a turning point in Esther's uh, heart and trusting her covenant God, Jehovah God. It's a turning point not only for Esther, but also Mordecai, they find themselves in a situation that there is no salvation unless the Lord works and saves. They find themselves moving from apathy and just sarah regarding their status, their ethnicity, their religion, and all the promises of God and what he has taught and told his people to turning to God because he's the only hope they have. In fact, the most famous phrase of the book is, for such... A time as this. Now, all of God's Word is inspired. All of God's Word is God's Word. The black and the red letters, all of it, <laughs> in a sense. Now, in a sense, it is. But we come across phrases that, that leap off the page. They stay in our memory. And throughout history, they're used again and again in speeches. They're, they're, they're put into modern-day vernacular on Instagram or some type of scenic photo with a script across it, some type of beautiful scene, and, and somebody will find a way to put it together as artwork in a beautiful way. 
And for such, the phrase, for such a time as this, is certainly one of those. In fact, it's a phrase that has application to so many personal situations. We will often say in the, in the moment of trial or a moment of tension, a moment of history, we'll say, well, who knows? It could be that God has brought these things to pass for such a time as this. In fact, I think people say it so often they forget where it all goes back to. And it's in Esther chapter 4 that we see the phrase mentioned for the very first time, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and one that we find ourselves resting in and rehearsing and not only have put to memory, but we meditate on and pull by the Holy Spirit's aid the strength from it that God is always at work. And it could be that He's at work in such a way that even in this, whatever this may be, for such a time as this. I'll mention our headings as we walk through the chapter uh, as we come to them. Number one, I want us to see, as chapter 4 opens up, we see immediately the despair of the Jews in verses 1 through 4. In fact, right off the cup, we see, cuff, we see the despair of Mordecai. Look there with me in verse 1. The Word of God reads, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, And he went out into the midst of the city. That is to say, visibly, publicly, he is going about with a disposition that the world is ending. He's mourning. He is grieved. And he cried aloud with a loud and bitter cry. Verse 2. And he went as far as the front of the king's gate. For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. At this point, we see it right off the beginning of chapter 4. The news of the edict, the decree to destroy all the Jews, had come to Mordecai's ears. And he responds swiftly and immediately with what he heard. In fact, if we enter into the text and just think about it for a second, the Holy Spirit does not tell us all that went into his grief. But there are some things that we, maybe we could consider. It could be that he immediately felt the responsibility of his actions. All of this would have been solved had he just made the courteous, reverential bow to Haman. Now, I'm not saying that's what he should have done. In fact, commentators are split across the board about Mordecai's actions. Some say he should have done it out of respect and honoring those who, (laughs) you know, deserve to be honored. And in that sense, it was about position, but it was not about worship. So some say it may be that he felt immediate regret that his act of not bowing to Haman to show that respect and that honor And maybe what he even felt was, yet Haman's taking something that's meant to be for respect and he's using it for worship. There's just all kinds of things we just don't know. But it could be that he he felt that. It could be that he felt that responsibility that his actions are now being imposed upon not just his family, but over all the Jewish people. Well, we just don't know. We don't know whether he's grieved solely because of the action alone whether he is honorable in his decision, and he says, I'll do it again 10,000 times. One thing we know for sure is in chapter 5, next time we'll see together, is that he still refuses to bow. So even though he's grieved, he's resolved to not give in. We'll put it that way. So he responds in a couple of ways. Notice he responds with a tearing of his clothes. This was a sign of distress. This was a sign that today the rich people tear their clothes and walk around in designer jeans with torn clothes, but not in this day. In this day, having torn clothes was not a cool thing. Uh, he tore his clothes. It was a sign of distress. Secondly, he, he put on sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Well, we see it all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament. 
It was made from the hair of goats, sometimes camels. It was very uncomfortable, causing chafing to the skin. It would remind the person who was mourning that they were, in fact, mourning. It was something of instant, constant uh, irritability, chafing to the skin. It was one that kept them uncomfortable and reminded them of why they were doing it. It was worn in times of grief, loss of a spouse, national mourning. And so that is exactly what Mordecai is doing. He's expressing the strong grief about the news that he has heard. The plot that Haman has put together. Thirdly, the text tells us that he not only tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, but he poured ashes upon his head. This was a symbol to God's people of humility, one of coming before God and saying, God, we are but the dust of the earth. We humble ourselves before you. We need your help, your aid, your blessing. Fourthly, we see that he goes about the whole of Shushan weeping and with loud wailing and mourning. In fact, historians tell us that the Persians mourned in this way in Xerxes' reign when the defeat of Salamis was, uh, Salamis was revealed to the people and that there was great loss among the Persians, that the whole city responded in this way. So he would have gotten their attention, but it was not something that was so foreign that nobody else had done it or did it as a custom and as a practice. One thing we see is I mentioned that Esther chapter 4 is a turning point for both Mordecai and for Esther, is that what Mordecai is demonstrating here is that he's not ashamed to be identified with the Jews. Everyone knows if he's responding in this way, it's in response to the decree. It's revealing his feelings about the death law that has, that has come down. In fact, he takes his mourning not just in the city center, but he takes it all the way to the king's gate. And we've already made reference to the king's gate. This was a place where Jewish prudence took place. This was a place where law was practiced, where those with grievances would come before the elders of the city in a sense. We see it often throughout the Old Testament, but it was an important place, a place of commerce, a place of trading. It was the city center. And anyone wearing sackcloth would not be allowed to walk through the king's gate. It was regarded as unclean. And the palace was a place for only the clean. No one would approach the king in mourning dress and in grieving dress. That is to say, if you were to be around the king, you had to be happy, happy, happy. You may have your troubles and your griefs and your sorrows, but you bear not, dare not bring those before the presence of the king. Do you remember Nehemiah? The story of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah hears the news of the walls, and he hears about the state of his people and the crumbling of, as a metaphor for all of it. And this is a burden that Nehemiah receives and that he cannot shake. And if you remember, he's in the presence as the cupbearers, in, in the presence of the king. And the king asked Nehemiah, why are you so sad? When you understand that Nehemiah could have been executed on the spot for his sorrow, this was not a manufactured, manufactured sorrow. The king sees it. And the reason he sees it is it stands out among all the plastic smiles in the king's courtroom. Well, that is the case here. Mordecai dare not enter into the king's presence, his palace, in this unclean posture, state, and in, in, in his dress. So the despair of the Jews. We see Mordecai. In verse 3, notice the despair of the people. Now our text tells us that in every province where the king's command and the decree arrived, there was great mourning. So the word is going forth 
by heralds and horsemen. We saw last time together the postal system is taking this decree to the ends of the earth, if you will. And as it goes, in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great response. And what was that response? It was a mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Historians estimate that there was as many as 15 million Jews in the Persian Empire under the reign of Xerxes during this time, including in the land of Israel. Remember, it's from India to Ethiopia. That, that is significant. From India to Ethiopia, there is mourning, there is fasting, weeping, and wailing. And in a sense, I was just thinking, and, and what they're doing is it's a rightful response. It's a concerning response, but there's certainly, just in case, you know, we mentioned last time, would they know who the Jews were? Surely they would. The Jews were those people, and we took a time to kind of point out the distinctness of the Jews. But just in case there were any lukewarm Jews out there, they're all telling who they are. I'm not mocking that. I'm just pointing it out. They're crying. They're fasting. They're weeping. They're mourning. This is a death sentence. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once a law and a decree goes forth and is in effect, nothing can revert it and take it back. In verse 4, we see the despair of Esther. Notice our text tells us, So Esther's maids and the eunuchs came, and they told her, and the queen was, in other words, the implication is about Mordecai, and also of the news, and, or excuse me, just about Mordecai, not, not of the news yet. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments out to Mordecai to clothe him and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Well, just to remind us, Esther is a prisoner. Yes, she's queen. Yes, she's the wife of Xerxes, but she's one among many. And she is a prisoner in the palace. She is a prisoner of the harem, and so she cannot come out to the common people. She cannot come out to Mordecai. It's as if maybe she is embarrassed. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came to her and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. But what is it that she's distressed about? Well, based upon what we see here, the implication is that she's more distressed about Mordecai in his distress. In fact, some commentators say this. Some believe that she was trying to get him cleaned up so that he could come into the palace and at least have a conversation with her, for she could not go out to him. Some say and believe that she was embarrassed of him. So what did Esther do about his mourning? Well, the first thing she did was she sent clothes to replace his sackcloth, to relieve him. And there may have been several action, uh, reasons for this action. Number one, we've already mentioned that he could not enter into the king's gate unless his clothing was changed, uh, unless it was removed. Secondly, it was the custom of the Persians to send new garments to relatives who were in normal mourning, the loss of a, a death or a, the loss of a loved one or the death of a loved one. Esther, hearing the news that Mordecai was mourning, may have assumed that someone close to him, a friend or family member, passed away. And as he refuses the garments, Esther gets the message, something is very, very wrong. So the distress of the people. Secondly, we see the decree that is revealed in verses 5 through 9. Look there with me in our text, Esther chapter 4, verse 5. The decree goes forth. Then Esther called Hathak one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend to her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. 
and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for the Jewish destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and to plead before him and for her people. Verse 9, so Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Notice here, a new player enters into the scene, this eunuch named Hathak. This was a messenger, no doubt, carefully chosen by Esther, one that she trusted, a trusted servant, no doubt. She sends him out to Mordecai to get an assessment upon the situation. In fact, I looked up his name, and it's a Persian word that means good. I don't know if we can look into it any further than that, but know that he must have been a good man living up to his good name. Some commentators estimate that he must have been a Jew. Some of the eunuchs were Jews and put into places of service, particularly as eunuchs. It would make sense that Esther would take a chosen comrade, someone that maybe she knew, although she didn't know the full uh, aspects of the whole situation. It would make sense. We just don't know. So she sends out her messenger to Mordecai. Notice, did you notice it as we read in verse 8? Something changed in our passage. Notice the two words in verse 8, her people. Now, For the first time, the Holy Spirit designates and makes the connection in this sense of Esther being connected to her people, the Jews. Consistently, the Holy Spirit has told us Mordecai, the Jew. But here, there's the presence of a third party making the mention of her people. And the idea is, is if her messenger, if Hathak doesn't know that the queen is a Jew, he knows now. Her secret up until this point, remember Mordecai had told Esther, Esther, don't tell anyone about your ethnicity. Well, now in this state of mourning, not only does Esther know, but her, her messenger knows. Mordecai has now exposed Esther to the situation, to her danger, and he has linked her with the Jews. And this is what leads some to surmise that Hathak must have been a Jew as well. We don't know. All right, number three, notice verses 10 through 12, we see the dilemma of the law. So then Esther, in these verses, Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servant and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter, that he may live. It's like, reminder here, Mordecai, that's another death sentence. You're telling me about that death sentence, Haman's death sentence, and you're instructing me and telling me to go into the king. If I go into the king uncalled for, the law of the land is I may lose my life, which is another death sentence. And notice the, the bit of information she adds to that right there in verse 11. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king's presence in the past 30 days. Verse 12, so they told Mordecai Esther's words. Esther's not feeling bold. She's not feeling confident. She knows the law of the land. Here she respectfully sends back the message that she cannot, and reminds him that she cannot go into the king uninvited. To do so was to face instant death. 
She reminds Mordecai that the only way that I see the king, have a relationship with the king, is to wait for his invitation. Unless I choose to risk my life and go boldly before the king and trust that his heart may be full of mercy. And that means he withholds what is rightfully due one who walks into his court uninvited. And that he extends that mercy. Now, that is a risk. No one would take that risk. But here, Mordecai is asking Esther to play Russian roulette with her life. Kings, just a reminder, were protected from the dangers and the stresses of people's problems. They lived in a fake world. Really, it didn't exist. Everybody was telling them what they wanted to hear. Literally, the emperor had no clothes, to give a metaphor. It was a reality that did not exist. And for her to come in with urgency and care and sorrow and concern would be to pop his little fake world. One commentator says this, Oriental monarchs were supposed to hear only the good news. And they reigned in a world of illusion, shattered from reality. In fact, one commentator describes the impressive throne room of King Xerxes as being 37,000 square feet. The roof being supported by six rows of six columns each. A throne room that was majestic and large. When the doors are open, she would be seen coming from a long way off on her very own death march. This is what Mordecai is, is asking her to do. She's not been invited to come before this mercurial king for 30 days. So what does Esther do? She passes the responsibility right back to Mordecai that Mordecai had given to her. Now, I don't know about you. This is a conversation. But this conversation is absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of trust here. There's a lot of intimacy here. There's a lot of knowledge here. There's a relationship here that Mordecai knows Esther, and Esther knows Mordecai. He has adopted her, and she has responded to his loving care, and she has viewed him as a father figure, an adopted father figure. And here he's asking, ordering her to save her people. What is she going to do? In other words, it's as if Mordecai says, Esther, not only must you do it, I know you can do it. I believe in you. You must do this for your, for your people. Well, now look at with me in verses 13 and 14. We see the destiny that is, that is certain. Notice what Mordecai says. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think, Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace, notice here, any more than all the other Jews. This is why I'm being urgent with you, Esther. If you don't do this, don't think that you will be preserved. The truth will come out. Well, certainly it will, Mordecai. You just outed her. <laughs> you just At least the eunuch now knows. We know that for sure. We don't know all the dynamics. Some can surmise, and that's really all we can do. So we'll just stop surmising. But this happens after the sermon. We'll have conversations and questions. Well, what about this? What about that? And usually the bottom line answer is, is we're just surmising. We don't know. But some say Mordecai knew in a certain way, that she would be outed, that there were more that knew, even though it was a, that it was a secret. Bottom line is, this is what he says, Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews who are slaughtered. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. 
This is shocking. Notice his boldness. This is a trust in the God that he has ignored for so long until chapter 4. The implication here is that God will raise up another solution. This is your duty. This is your opportunity. Verse 14. But if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows? Whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Talk about persuasive. Talk about convincing. Talking about wheels turning. Talking about calling up. Talking about raising the bar of expectation for those who have an opportunity in a position to do something about the situation. You feel all of these things in Mordecai's language to Esther. In fact, what he's saying here is he assures her that she will die even though she is in the king's house. Well, how does he know that? Because it's the law. Mordecai is confident that the truth will come out and that she will be just as in danger in the palace as she is, uh, as she thinks she is safe, that it will be made known. In fact, he summarizes this in three brief points. Esther, you could be killed, you will be killed, or Esther, you will be passed over. Jehovah God has always raised up a deliverer among his people. Now, he's not saying that part, but that's the, that's the implication. Why is Mordecai so confident? Well, he knows enough to know that the covenant-keeping God has promised to bring a Messiah through his people. He knows of the Abrahamic covenant. He knows of the promise going back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. One thing Mordecai does know is the promises of God. And while he knows we may perish, it could be that God may also use someone else. There's an opportunity here, Esther, but you also may be passed over. And you need to give thought to that, consideration to that. And then thirdly, the third brief point he makes is, Esther, it could just be that you were born for this very moment. Friends, it's as if Mordecai is looking back in his grief and his sorrow, and he's seeing his life flash before his eyes, and he's seeing all the volitional choices that he made that were faulty thinking, putting her in this position to even begin with, and then all of a sudden realizing that God may be just behind it all. And then it begins to dawn on him, it begins to weigh on him, Esther, you may have been born for this very moment. It could be that God has put you where you are for this. Now, it's surreal. It's a, it's a semblance and a mixture of caution. Could it be? Like, could it be that God could even use this? Could it be that he used me in the foolish decisions and even some of the sinful decisions, decisions that I've made? And now that we are here because I didn't bow, but yet we're also here because she's there, and it could be that she is the Savior of God's people. It's as if Mordecai's feeling all of it. The weight of all of it. And he's giving excellent counsel to her in this very moment. It's a moment of realization of God's sovereign hand at work in the ordinary, mundane decisions of life. In fact, Joseph experienced this as well, if you remember. We've made reference to this. Joseph chapter 50. Joseph. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. When his brothers came to him after the death of of Jacob of Israel... They just knew that 
Joseph would take out vengeance upon them. And they come to him asking and ensuring a plan of safety and preservedness. Do you remember what he says? Again, another verse that stands with us, that we repeat, that we remember, that we tell ourselves in the same moments that we ourselves recognize that God's sovereign hand must be at work. Now, we say it like that because we know he's at work in here. <laughs> and we know he's at work when the preacher's preaching about it. And we know we rest in his attributes in the Sunday school lesson. But out there, in our home, in our conversations, at the, at the funeral home, at the hospital, when we've lost our job, is God sovereign there too? And we have these moments of realization where we say with Joseph, but as for you, brothers, you meant it for evil against me. But now I see that God meant it for good. You're fully responsible for the choices you have made, but even better, I've learned to see God's sovereign hand in it all. And what blows my mind, Joseph is saying, is how you sold me into slavery, but God positioned me down here this whole time so that I could save many people alive, my people. Fascinating. He goes on to say that God would save in order to bring about it as it is this day to save many people alive. Let me just say this. We're not to the points of application yet, but it is a great day in my life and in your life when we can stop passing the blame and we can stop blaming people and circumstances and, and events. And if this had happened and back in high school and that teacher and this coach and that job and this boss and allowing Bitterness to take root in our hearts and any number of things as the Lord needs to apply it to our hearts. It's a wonderful day in our life when we can see God's shepherding sovereignty at work in our heart and we can rest in it. As Spurgeon says, the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which the people of God lay their head upon and sleep at night. Well, number five, we see the directions of Esther given in verses 15 and 16. Notice what she says. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and tell them to fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise in the same way. And so I will go to the king. Notice that I resolve. I will, so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Here in just so many verses, we have yet another famous saying and a phrase, and it's the phrase, and if I perish, I perish. What we have here is a turning in the heart of Esther, resting in the sovereign purposes of her God. What does it sound like? Does it echo anything else that we know of in our Old Testament knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures? Surely it does. It sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will not bow at the commands of Nebuchadnezzar, will they? In fact, everybody is ordered and told to bow down, not to Haman, but to this idol, this majestic monstrosity of an idol. And if you don't bow, the decree has already been given, uh, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And these young men will not bow. In fact, that's where we get the phrase, we will not bow. We, we use that phrase off the top. Where, where do we get these things from? We get it from these saints of old who are imperfect and sinful in their own understandings, who need God's grace. And what those young men said is, yeah, we're not doing that. 
throw us into that fire. And God, our God, will deliver us. And notice this next phrase, and if not. In other words, we know He can. We believe He will. We trust in Him. But you know what? We love Him and we will not bow. And if He so chooses that that's not His will to deliver us, we love Him anyway. That is to say, we don't love and worship Him because of what He does for us. We don't only obey Him and trust in Him if He gives us what we want. Our God will deliver us. But if not, we still won't bow. Now, that may be over... It's like I'm talking down to you. I don't mean to talk down to you. That may not be hitting home, but friends, I'm going to tell you, that hits home to me. I, I need courage. I need backbone. You need it too. In our current day and age, we're not preaching the book of Daniel, but as we look at these illustrations, these are people who begin to get an understanding of the weightiness of the matter, of the circumstances, and they begin to look with faith to their God. Here we see Esther's resolve so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, well, then I perish. Then we come to verse 17. So Mordecai went his way and did all according to all that Esther had commanded him. Well, I want to give us some points to ponder as we conclude chapter 4 here this evening. Some things to take home. We've already made some references and some points of application. But going back to the beginning of chapter 4. It's a reminder to us that it's okay to mourn when tragedy strikes. It is okay to mourn when tragedy strikes. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our situation, we're not Jews and we're not even in, in the Holy Land today. We understand that they, we, we've made reference to and are praying for all that they're going through. So do not hear what I'm saying as if I'm trying to equate us with them. But I'm afraid in church culture, where we speak Christianese, that there's a sense at times that because of our hope and the reality of the resurrection, because of our understanding of who God is and trust, that sometimes we forget that there is a place for mourning. In this chapter, we see resolve and confidence in God. But we also see immediate ripping of clothes and sackcloth and ashes. And I'm just going to be honest with you. We could use a little bit more of it in America today. We could use more tears. We could use more fasting. We could, the world, America would do better and would be more help to see the church repenting and weeping. And I'm not meaning figuratively to start ripping our clothes, but that's actually what they, that's what they did. And what I mean is just simply in a heart posture of seeking God's face, holding solemn assemblies as we do here at Grace, taking time to fast and to pray. And what we don't need is Bible Betty when we are to come to us and say, now why are you crying? And if your name's Betty, I'm sorry. Why are you crying? We are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. Oh, that's true, Betty. But there is a place for weightiness of heart. There is a place for grief. There is a place for seeking the Lord's face. And it's what Paul points to in the gospel as a minister of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, in the ministry, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. 
We are struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Christian, have you ever found yourself at a point of unarticulable, it's not even a word, a place to where you cannot articulate all that's going on in your heart. Well, you're not alone. There is a place for weeping. There is a place for grieving as we make application to our current moment in our own sanctification and our walk with Christ. As Paul so elegantly says, hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. In fact, in our happy, 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 happy America, the church would do well to mourn over the sins, not only of her own commission, but also over our land and over our nation. We should weep over what took place this past week in Ohio. We should weep about the state of Ohio writing into the very Constitution the permission to rip babies apart in the womb. That, that should blow our minds. But we're so numb and my, my goal is not to talk about abortion every Sunday, but if I did, then put up with it. Because Sunday night, we, I just made reference to it, and then that very week, we see in this land something that's no different than offering, offerings to Baal. There's a place for mourning and fasting and weeping. And I'll just say this, we could use more of it. Not as if that's how we manipulate God, but just in a response to the, just the awareness of the way things are in our culture, in our society. Secondly, we made reference to this earthly king, Xerxes, who lives in a fake world where you better not come into his presence and ruin his day. You better not pop the bubble and tell him everything's good when it's not good. You better not be dour in his presence in anything that goes along with that. But church, I just want to remind us our king invites us to come before his presence. He invites us to come with our tears into his presence. He invites us to come boldly before him because of the work of the Son of God. How different our king is from earthly kings. How different King Jesus is from Xerxes. He has worn the sackcloth of sorrow. He knows how we feel, and he gives us free access to his throne. If you'll turn with me just briefly to Hebrews chapter 10. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19. And let us rehearse the good news of the gospel and what our gracious king invites us to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way 
which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us, because of this reality, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, rejoice in the finished work of Christ. Rejoice in the shed blood of Christ. Rejoice in that you have a great high priest who is not too good to be bothered by your circumstance or your trial or whatever it is that you go before him in the secret place of prayer. In fact, you have his invitation. You come boldly before him with all of your baggage, with all of your sin, with all of your needs and your concerns, your crushed dreams, with all the things that have not gone the way that you want them to go or you think they should go. You come and you bring them before Jesus. And he knows how to empathize and he knows how to minister and he knows how to minister grace to his children. So he's mentioned this morning, come to your heavenly father uh, who sees in secret. Come and pour out your heart uh, before him. Well, may the Lord apply his word and add his blessing to the teaching and preaching of his word here this Lord's day. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly father, we love you and we thank you for just your Spirit's aid and help as we walk through Esther chapter 4. Father, we leave not talking about Esther and Mordecai, but fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Hearing your word and your invitation. Understanding that in this life there are topographical emotions. The topography of our life goes up and it goes down. There are exhilarations of joy an ecstasy of just gladness in you and your gifts and your, just your blessings. And then, Father, there are days that we did not know that we could feel such sorrow. And whether they be the worst of days or the best of days, you are the God who never changes. You are the God whose invitation still stands. You are the King who we can come boldly into your presence, not by any work of righteousness that we have done, but through your mercy have you saved us. And we rejoice in that. And Father, that's just what we need as we conclude this Lord's Day, as we rest in you. Father, we pray that you'd guide our time of fellowship here this evening as we celebrate with the body, as we rejoice in the God who gives life. You are the God who gives. You are the God who takes away. And we say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.